0: Hey, John, um, how are you? Thank you, thank you for your time today. Um, This is our next conversation with with John from Stoll Reeves. He's the Chief Information Security Officer there. My name is Rama Rama Uh, and I'm, I do this podcast series on behalf of the Society for Information Management here at Portland uh, and um, yeah this is as part of the education committee we try to do um, these kind of uh, speak with leaders kind of podcast series where we try to learn about their career paths, their career journeys, uh, what what worked for them, what didn't work for them, things like that, and uh, and we have the uh, the good fortune here of uh, speaking to John Washburn from Stoll Reeves today. John, would you uh, would you mind introducing yourself and give, giving some more background?
1: Uh, sure. So I'm John Washburn. I'm here in Portland. I'm the Chief Information Security Officer for Stoll Reeves. I've been in that role for probably two and a half years but I've been doing security there since I started in 2011. I've held the security officer title as part of my job description for about nine years um, but it just became a formal full-time thing um, a little under three years ago. Um, In addition to Stoll Reeves, I also am on the Executive Committee for the Legal Services Information Sharing and Analysis Organization or LSISO. I'm also on another number of committees with ILTA, the International Legal Technology Association. Um, And then I also am on a few other, I don't know, committees, whatever around here. (laughs) I'm sure most of you have met me at some event or other in Portland. Um, I also did security as part of my role as a network manager when I was in New York at another law firm. Um, Pretty much anyone who's been in networking or you know, server administration or anything like that has been really doing security for a long time. It's just become a more full-time position in the last probably five to 10 years.
0: Yeah. uh, Yeah, that's, that's accurate. I mean, uh, yeah, back when uh, about 10, it's about 10 years ago now, I used to be um, working for the CISO at Columbia University and, um, you know, I was managing the identity and access management department um, in, and my my colleagues there were from networking and I, you know, and uh, they're like, oh, we've been doing IT security for years now. So, <laughs> so that's just, it just became a formal stream uh, or a formal practice um, in the past 10 years or so. Yeah, um, you're absolutely right. So uh, so John, uh, how long have you been in technology and what, what kind of brought you to technology or did you just start your career in technology?
1: No, I am. Um... So when I was a kid, my dad um, was an engineer. He was self-taught, never went to school. Um, he learned some engineering when he was in the Air Force for a while. And he had worked on UNIVAC, which was one of the early tube computers. Yeah. So in the early 80s, he figured out, you know what? Um, computers are going to take over engineering personal computers. I better get back into computers. So he went and bought an old 8086 computer. Well, it was new then, it's old now. Um, the cool thing, cool feature, it had two five and a quarter inch floppy drives so I could do drives when I was a kid. So my dad told us, me and my brother, if we learned computers, we could do some work for him on the weekends and he'd pay us. So we both taught ourselves how to use AutoCAD 3 when we were kids um, and we would help my dad mark up plans and stuff like that. And so we really got into computers. Um, My brother uh, does really high-end CAD design for a piping company, Um, went through the math program at PSU. Um, I ended up going to college and deciding I was going to do public relations. (laughs) I got away from computers for a bit. And then when I got out of school, I was like, I can't do that much with my liberal arts degree. So I ended up um, working an engineering company doing AutoCAD after doing a little bit for my dad. And while I was there, they had an old distributed print system that was a piece of junk. And someone asked me, like, what should we do about this? Should we hire these guys at this local internet service provider, which was kind of a new thing then in the 90s? And they had this old server that they'd never put together on the floor. And I said, you know what? Just give me the manuals. I'll figure it out. And so I went, wired the whole office through the suspended ceiling, set up the server, Windows 3.1.1. Um, I replaced the BNC connectors in the back with Ethernet, <laughs> and then ended up replacing a print system that took two hours to print a drawing on a plotter with about 40 percent accuracy so usually it took three attempts for it to work with a print system that now would print with 100 accuracy in 10 minutes so long before the movie office space one of the owners of the company and i went outside with an aluminum bat and hit the print modules through the parking lot for a couple <laughs> hours with a bottle of whiskey anyway so that's really what got me started and after that i thought you know i should be doing computers more often I worked there for a couple of years. I ended up working at a casino in Northern California as the IT manager there. Then I went to work for an internet service provider that a friend of mine still owns in Sacramento area. Then I ended up moving to New York, working in publishing in IT there, and then in legal where I've been for the last 16 years. I worked for a a law firm that was, uh, our office was down on Wall Street. it's interesting because, you know, I have certifications and I'm not a huge certification person, which is kind of ironic, but I think they're great if you're trying to illustrate to somebody that doesn't know you, whether or right. not you know what you're talking about. That's really what their use is. Right. Um, and then, and the, of course, it keeps you honest, right? Because you have to maintain them. But yeah. all my computer stuff is pretty much self-taught or through... You know training classes here and there and all of that never got a computer science degree i'm actually in grad school right now getting my uh mba finally um nice. just because i thought that'd ah, be fun um, but it's uh it's interesting how we fall into computers especially security a lot of security people i know do not have computer science degrees <laughs> they have some other background and my unproven theory about that is that you have to have a slightly different mindset when looking at security because you have to be able to step outside of the system right and think not so much about the technology of the system and the you know the code or whatever else you have to step outside of it and think about methods you know tactics techniques and procedures if i wanted to break into this system how would i do it and <laughs> in most cases it's wetware engineering i go after the people <laughs> but um it's is if you go to security events and you you know go to rsa you attend b-sides or you go to something like that you'll see a lot of really good development and really solid, you know, computer science being applied, which is, you know, the underpinning of everything. But you also will find seminars on things like tabletop exercises on just doing investigations, the method methodology of investigations, things like uh, physical security, hacking, social engineering.
0: And that's the kind
1: of stuff I think that really interests me and why I got so much into security was because I feel like, if you're doing security, you're spending all your time trying to outwit other people. Yeah. So how do I build a system that is well protected against someone out there, an adversary who hopefully has the collective intelligence that's you know smarter than we are, right. <laughs> hopefully for them at least. Um, and so how do we up our game to compete with that? And so I think that makes it a really interesting profession. I wish more people would get into it we don't have nearly enough security people. But every time I go talk to kids, I try and get them interested. If I get one out of fifty in a computer science program, then I'm excited.
0: Right? Yeah. No. It uh, it's actually yeah, true. Um, there are. I mean, it it seems like a some sort of a dark art um, from the outside, um, pretty intimidating. Uh, but but you're right. Like I've been speaking to so many. Um, so many individuals, and and encouraging them to also kind of consider, um, you know, switching into IT security. Um, a lot of the folks uh, from desktop support actually also get into, or you know, the the first the first line there, the the folks who pick up the phone, respond to tickets, things like that. They um, they do a very good job getting in once they get into IT security because they've heard the range of problems or solve the range of problems there, even the first level, second level, third level kind of issues. And then they they clearly know, okay, um, so if this is the issue, this might be the problem. So they have clear ideas for what could break and hence what the vulnerabilities potentially could be and things like that. And they definitely have the customer service uh for the user facing kind of experience. So, so you, you're absolutely right. It takes a diverse, um, for people of diverse backgrounds to come in and actually bring their collective perspectives to this field. And the more we can get, the more we'll take is uh, currently the state of the world there. Um, yeah, do you uh, recollect any uh, pivotal moments? Any, any, any of those, aha, this totally makes sense to me. This is why I'm here. Any of those revelation kind of moments? Um, yeah during your journey, your career journey through, uh, through the years?
1: Yeah, I would say, I don't know if it was a single moment, but back in probably 2006, I think it was, when I was in New York, we were rolling out laptops at the law firm I worked for then. And the a couple of years before, I think it was, they'd been hit by code red um, which was one of those early malware attacks, and didn't really hurt them, but it, you know, it was able to do something, right? It was before I was there, and so they were like, "We know we need to, you know, we need to address this risk. How are we going to do it?" And one of the we got together, we said, "Look, the only way to do this is to lock down PCs. We should be running GPOs and enforcing user context, and we should be running a whitelist." Now, back then, this was a global law firm that pulled in nearly a billion dollars a year in revenue. And imagine trying to convince people in all these countries around the world that we are gonna lock them out, screaming, fighting, I can't do my job if you don't let me install software, blah, blah, blah. And so there was a lot of political wrangling back and forth. But then we ended up discussing with people and find out, you know what, it's not gonna ruin your life if we do this. We are gonna have to staff up and we're gonna have to manage this, but we are going to use whitelisting. This is before PAM tools existed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And so we ended up uh, going from, trying to remember how many it was. I think it was like eight or 9,000 apps in the environment because we're talking probably 2,000 devices globally, um, just end user devices, and uh, plus the VM environment. So making that about probably 3,000, anyway. We scanned it all, but we determined there's so many, so much of it was versioning of a piece of software, blah, blah, We ended up nailing it down to about 140 apps. And then by the time I left and came out here, it probably built up to maybe 350 to 400 managed apps over five years, six years. Um, But it cut the risk down probably by 90 something percent. Because now people clicked on stuff it just couldn't install. When we got out to here to still Reeves, we took it even a step further and started whitelisting uh, ActiveX controls, uh, uh, browser plugins, uh, to some degree scripts. um well, you know it's hard to you can't really do it with PowerShell, but uh, Windows Defender uh, for endpoint now does a really good job of detecting weird PowerShell scripts. We tested it out in a third party uh, pivot test last year. So once. Back in twenty in two thousand six two thousand seven, I realized how much we had to pay attention to the PCs, and that there were ways we could use technology more than habit or you know avoidance even to mm-hmm. reduce these risks. I was like, you know, this is a full time thing, and I remember telling our law firm back then, you know, this is going to be a big deal. You should watch out for cybersecurity. You're probably going to be doing a lot of legal work in this area. I wasn't the only one by any means, right? right. There was a trend in this. Nobody, knows this is baloney, nobody's, nobody cares, It's is going to happen. Then 2008 happened, the market crashed and we freaked out, and then people were paying attention to that. And then suddenly cybersecurity started popping up more and more in 2009, 2010. And by that time, I was focused on, even though I was still a network manager back then, when I came out here, 2011, it had really started gaining steam. And in the couple of years, I got security officer glued onto my title as a role because yeah. I realized this is a full-time yeah. job. And now if you look at it, there's this, uh, you look at Ubiquity, for example, um, I don't yeah. know if you're familiar with what's going on with them right now. They are yeah. probably in trouble. Um, and uh, within, I think it was probably 72 hours, there is an investor lawsuit. <laughs> you right. Know?
0: Right.
1: Like, yo, you said what? You know? And so nowadays it's just, every time a cybersecurity event happens, your company's reputation is at risk, your regulatory risk potentially, You've got angry customers, angry investors, the media. I mean, it's just it piles on. And so now the impact, right, the potential impact, which, you know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago was, oh, we got hit with a sophisticated attack and people would feel sorry for you and feel sympathetic and say, oh, oh my goodness, the criminals got you like, I'll still shop there, right? Right. Uh, Over the years now. Even if you do everything you can to prevent the attack, and it really isn't your fault, and this is a zero day, or you're a small company going up against a nation state, customers are a lot less forgiving now, and so the stakes are much much higher. And so I think that's why it's become such a full time job. I think working on those PCs back then was probably the point where I where I determined, you know what, this is only going to get worse. Yeah, seeing the level seeing some of the code i gotta tell you um so at our firm we ban applications that have to run in local admin context uh. Uh, and i've had to turn away some big companies say nope get your developers back together and fix this because your <laughs> app should not have to run in local admin context ever
0: exactly
1: um and so that's and that's a big deal because if you remember um the whole uh what is it the uh, i always get not pet you when i cry mixed up in my head but um, that application in Ukraine, right? The, the tax mm-hmm. app that got compromised also mm-hmm. had to run in local admin context.
0: Right.
1: So why, you know, I'm sure the companies that had it, right, just installed it on a PC and in our environment, it would be no. Or if you mm-hmm. absolutely have to have it, it's going to be a non-domain joined PC on its own subnet that doesn't connect to anything else. You know, and you're going to, mm-hmm. that's the only thing on there and I'm going to put epoxy in all the network ports. So right. <laughs> other than the one we're going to allow, right? Um, anyway, it's, uh, so, uh, yeah, I know it's a long-winded answer, but it's, oh, it's, no, no, it's a could, complicated yeah. question, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it's true. I mean, it's, uh, is you know, like, it's one of those, like, you, you, you really don't realize that that's happened till, till a few years later and you think, oh yeah, no, that's what led me down this path. And in this case, it was, it was you know the PCs that you were talking about. So no, I don't think it was a long winded answer at all. And all that context is useful because you gained so much valuable um, experience from doing that, which which kind of shapes your um, your current day decisions. So that's that's pretty useful and important. I'm going to just pivot slightly. I mean, um, what 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 is um, some advice that you might have uh, for 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 kids in college now who are looking to make a career in information security or even um, working professionals who are looking to transition probably into IT security, what would be some avenues and paths that you would recommend they take so they can be successful uh, in their transition?
1: Yeah, first of all, I would say, number one, learn the frameworks, right? Um, Like learn the NIST CSF Learn the NIST-RMF risk management framework um, and understand just the nature of the framework, like why we do what we do, you know, why, why incident response goes in a particular order, um, how you prioritize things, how you evaluate risk, getting away from that. I like to tell people every time I do a risk evaluation with a company, it's the meteor strike scenario. You know, they hear one potential risk and they think, oh, my God, our reputation is going to be in ruins. I'm like, now, wait a minute. We have to talk about the likelihood of this happening. Um, How likely is it? Yes, that impact is terrible. Um, But the biggest thing probably is if you haven't taken uh, community theater classes, you haven't done a lot of public speaking, you don't do, if you maybe do improv, something like that, learn to be able to stand up in front of people comfortably, talk about things in a way they can understand. Because if you want to do security, Sure, we can talk tech to each other all the time, but the business has no idea what you're saying. You have to be able to take everything and translate it into business terms for everyone else. You have to be able to talk to all the users using analogies, using examples that they can understand. I mean, it's it's funny, you know, we think of spoofing, right? Right. You know, I take a fake Gmail Yahoo address and I put your name on it and I send it to people and they think it's you, especially on their phone because... The real estate and the phone doesn't allow for the actual email address to be displayed. It just displays the friendly name and you think it's you. You know, that kind of stuff seems so simple to technical people. It takes me re- repeat after repeat after repeat to get people to get the concept of spoofing and the yeah. reverse. You know, I talked to somebody yesterday and said, but oh, we had spoofing on our network. Like, what happened? Oh, well, you know, our CEO's address got spoofed. I said, well, wait a minute. You mean you got an email that said it was from your CEO, but it was from Gmail. Oh no, it was his email account. I was like, well, that's not really spoofing. Like it's impersonation. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Cause spoofing is fake and uh, you've got somebody in your CEO's email account. That's more serious. Sure. Um, but that's just even those concepts. It's you, you can't, you have to pay attention to the little stuff. And so you have to practice and practice and practice. How do I convey this information to people in a way they can understand so while yeah. you're focusing on the technical part of your career, yeah. focus on the soft skills, the people skills part, because it's really, is gonna be what makes the difference between being an engineer and an analyst, Good and right. a manager and a leader, that's the, that's the difference. And, yeah. if, and if you wanna be an engineer and ask, that's great, right? Like, I mean, yeah. it depends on what your focus is, but you can open up far more opportunity for yourself. Uh, you know, I have a friend who is an engineer who manages a team of engineers now? Never wanted to manage people, um, yeah. but still had good people skills, and has now basically because of his people skills become the manager of the engineers because he's the right. only one they trust in right. the company to come back and you know translate concepts to them.
0: Yeah, yeah, no it it's a it's an excellent point. I mean, um, I can relate to that from my my experience. So when I got hired at Jensen, um, of course we're a small firm and pretty much everybody wants to talk to somebody whom they're hiring, right? So um, so this was this marathon day of interviews and I had one half hour session with two board members, the CFO and the chief compliance officer, right? And I find out after being hired and all that few months in that they walked in thinking, okay, it's an IT director position, You know, what are we going to understand? We're not going to learn we're not gonna know what's going on. We're not gonna be able to um, uh, understand the concepts, things like that. So so they walk in um, and I'm there explaining a few concepts here. And then immediately what happens is uh, they start, okay, I didn't understand that. So I had to explain that in words that they understood. And a few weeks later, I find out that they hired me or they put in their vote for me because they're like, okay, I can actually understand what this guy says. <laughs> so so that's really, really important um, to, uh, you know, yeah, I, got, I, got, I can't stress enough on that. Yeah.
1: And I think if you're, if you end up managing a team or managing people, you have to give them some free reign to, you know, approach things in the way they think is right, learn new skills in the job, that kind of stuff. I mean, security positions, it's tough to maintain people in a position unless you give them a lot to do and you make it really interesting and you make it fun to some degree. You know, if you keep things too static or you, I guess, oversell the idea. So for example, we have an IT department. I don't have any security people right now. I have one. I'm kind of training up, but I don't need them. I've outsourced it to a managed security service provider to do most of the grunt work. And we have our IT team, uh, especially the ops team, which I used to manage before I started doing this full time anyway. Um, so I leverage them for a lot of stuff. And many of them could honestly, if they decided tomorrow, would, like change their title to security analyst, security engineer, probably even security architect for a couple of them. You know, they've taken the time while being a networking server systems person to learn the security as well and kind of keep a very wide skill set and lift that whole skill set up. And by having that kind of multidimensional skill set, you're even more valuable. And, mm-hmm. the re- you know, how do I keep these people, right? Well, it's because we, you know, when they come up with an idea and say, here's how I want to secure the system, I don't come back and be prescriptive and say, you're going to do this, this, and this. I'm going to say, these are the requirements we have to meet. How you do it is up to you, right? You're the yeah. engineer, not me. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so I think people really appreciate that. It's like, no, I'm not going to tell you how to do it. You're going to tell me how to do it. And I'm going to go edit and make sure it meets all of our requirements and so you know with our whole thing is you know doing it the right way getting it done on time and doing it within budget other other than those three tenants fair game right like you're the person where we hired to do this job you tell us how to do it exactly uh,
0: exactly yeah that, that that makes real sense And and the earlier fact earlier point about hey I mean know your stuff right that's that goes without saying yeah j- just uh, understand what your, uh, what your uh, frameworks are, uh, read up the, the, the NIST white papers, the, the guidelines, the uh, framework and CSF, RMF, you know, all that, um, all that stuff, know what you're, what you're working towards. um, And then um, figure out a way to communicate that in language that the board understands, because that they are the folks who are going to let you work on these projects or not,
1: you know. Yeah. Yeah. And they're the ones who are going to tell you what's really a priority and what isn't. So we are a Windows Hello shop now. We're fully, you know, Fido2 Windows Hello compliant. We are using biometric plus DPM with also a pin option. I mean, wow. you can still use a password, but what's the point? I mean, it's so much easier to use my face. Um, at the same time, like, how did we get there? Well, it took like probably two and a half years on the back end for us to, first of all, get devices that all had TPM. Second of all, um, you know, build out the necessary tools in the cloud for us to do it because, of course, we're also managing our devices, whether or not they're connected to us. So, as long as they're on the internet, we control them. Um, mm-hmm. So, you don't need VPN for that. But the reason we got there is we would ask our users, what's the biggest pain in the ass? And one thing people complain about is, I'm typing that ridiculous. Password that you requirement, I we actually do a passphrase requirement. So it's right. really long and has all sorts of interesting complexity forms to it. And so people were like, I, first of all, I can't, you know, I can remember this one, but it's a pain in the ass. And then once I log in, I connect to VPN, I got to enter it again. I, you know, why do I have to do that? And so that's how it started. And so we started going back and forth on this. And so now once I authenticate, I just have to click to connect to VPN because I'm already using my credentials. We're using conditional access, device profiling, embedded certificates, all this other stuff to remote control multi-layer manage our devices. But that project just got kicked off by, oh, I have this interesting idea of how I can fix this problem with customers. And we let the engineering group go with it. And in their spare time, they spent a lot of time, you know, making sure they did it right requiring you know coming back to saying you know what if you want to do this we need to get into Azure you know what if you we need to do this we're gonna to have to get this slightly different licensing program and I want to stand up these servers and I want to build this environment and then I want to connect these things together and now I want to you know and so over and over but the cool thing about it was the engineers come to us and say this right. is what I want to do right. and instead of us saying okay we're gonna you know do the old way of management and set this metric and then we're just gonna you know, manage a project week to week. And no, it's like, here's our skunkworks lab on the left. You're going to come up with this. Right. You know, and then once it gets to a minimum viable product stage, then mm-hmm. we're going to start focusing on it, putting more money in it, really getting it into the project stream and everything else. You know, our IT director, Adam Nelson, could talk quite a bit about, uh, you know, running through development cycles in a, in a more agile way and uh, how we, you know, manage projects and how we keep from, prioritizing the things that really aren't a priority and really trying to focus on the things that truly are.
0: Right. Yeah, no, makes sense. I mean, um, I I have a similar philosophy. I mean, I just say, you know, fail fast, fail, fail quickly, you know, um, you know, and, and so um, so small iterations, um, you know, that totally makes sense. Yeah. But, but to your point, I mean, IT security really is just, um, um, as most departments like to view it, um, they they think of IT security as a as a uh, as a group that tries to deter their work yeah. and things like that. But I always try to say, no, we're we're making sure that we help you, we're alongside you, and just help you do things more securely and safely. Um, so um, just be more of a partner. Uh, in that sense, as opposed to somebody who who gets in the way of them getting uh, getting further along. Uh, that's that's great. Um, the uh, the one last question I have for you: We can't get off this um, this topic without uh, talking about newer technologies like um, artificial intelligence, m- machine learning, blockchain, blockchain, Bitcoin. We've been hearing a lot of lately, so. You have any uh, thoughts around those how, how those will impact this field and things like that
1: so it's funny um there's a blockchain is a great solution looking for a problem to solve um it solved one right you know like you know digital currency but mm-hmm. how can we apply it to other things like i i still don't understand why we have to notarize physical documents. I mean, you could use blockchain to replace Mm -hmm. the whole notarization process. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think there's some, it's just that, it's sort of like IPv6, you know, the technology is awesome, but it's slow to adapt, or if you know an email, right? uh, DMARC, so if people have done it, even though everybody should be doing it, we're doing it. Um, I think uh, some of those technologies, they just, they're great ideas but either they're not being used enough, or in the case of AI, it's being overused. Right. Um, I don't know that some people get the difference between machine learning and AI. And yeah. I've seen so many examples where some where machine learning is being called AI, right? Yeah. You know, you're seen yeah. the machine a bunch of examples, and it's <laughs> correlating the examples out, and versus a you know an algorithm that can make independent decisions and um, and even even with AI, you know, it's all the AI, AI we're doing is, you know, weak AI. I mean, it's it's super valuable. What I mean by weak is, you know, strong AI would be an Android, you know. <laughs> thank, yeah, for, yeah. thank goodness it's we're an far Android. from that so far. Skynet's hopefully not on the horizon. <laughs> um, I think what I would like to see more is taking the AI mindset and applying it to, like, data leakage prevention Um those are solutions that I was long skeptical of. I can't tell you how many presentations I walked out on <laughs> in, the early, in the early days of that stuff. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. But, cause there's too many false positives, but now it's gotten better. And the key about data leakage prevention is it needs to warn you ahead of time while not interrupting the flow of your business. And that's the big challenge. Cause so far, most of the stuff I've seen is either the incident already occurred and we're letting you know something got leaked so you can prevent future leaks. Right. or you have to program it so that you need to approve before these categories of information go out. And so imagine a law firm, we send out confidential stuff via email all the time with clients um, and, you know, in a secure manner, but it contains that data. You know, a DLP an- analysis is going to flag constantly like, yep, yep, this has a social security number. Well, we have a whole private client practice. Of course it has a social security number, but we also have a peer TLS connection. So, you know, um, I think more effort in data, data leakage prevention is really necessary. I think just keep developing more accurate models. Um, one thing I've been looking at lately has been really cool is a uh, new product that people are working on here in Portland that's designed to try and better map vulnerabilities versus things like CVSS scoring, which CVSS scores are valuable. I mean, any metrics valuable. The problem is, is that what's that metric in my environment? You know, if the the thing's got a risk of nine, but it requires local admin context, well, guess what?
0: That's not
1: happening. Uh, And and that's a big problem. I think we'll see, like we get audited all the time, of course. And the auditors will come in and say, you know, show me that you've patched all your high vulnerabilities. And my response is always like, in what context? Like we've patched all the vulnerabilities that are high to us. You might find some... You know this one vulnerability isn't patched yet but we've already mitigated it with compensating controls or with by you know removing the capability in the environment but you're referencing the cve database and i'm referencing our actual environment so a lot of time we end up just patching all the highs just to do it even though they Wait. wouldn't the risk for us we'll do it anyway because you still don't want to be bothered in the audit
0: exactly yeah yeah no so that, more
1: that all there. makes sense yeah,
0: yeah. um I'm a um, just going back to the whole blockchain thing. I'm an identity access management guy from years ago, <laughs> um, that, like, uh, so so for me, I mean, uh, and again, I mean, uh, data privacy issues and things like that can be very well gar- guarded with with blockchain, especially in the identity access management context. Like, or if if the if the context switches to you manage your identity in. For instance walk into an organization why sign why join their active directory network your your identity you kind of uh you know uh, the the system can actually check to see if it's if mm-hmm. it's rama and then assign attributes to you to say user employee of jensen and things like that so it's a so it turns it on the head a little bit but I I feel like there'll be a lot more applications like that where you walk around and then when you leave, those attributions or attestations just go away, Um, things like that. But again, more to come there, I guess. And to your point about, um, yeah, with AI and machine learning, there's a huge confusion there between which is which and people use those terms interchangeably. A lot of the progress in those areas is around RPA, I think, lately. And, and that's where, um, just to check a box, a lot of people are doing that as well. Um, so yeah, no, all very valid and, uh, and meaningful comments there. I I agree with you. Um, a lot more can be done on the DLP side. I'm struggling with um, some of that with Office 365, trying to put, put DLP rules around teams and it's, it's like, uh, Putting a fence around something that's so, so amorphous and so fluid that it it just um, yeah it's not that easy. But uh, but yeah, it's it, it's something. It's a it's a, it's an area where these kind of newer technologies, especially uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, can help a lot.
1: Well, um, going back to what you said earlier, too. Don't you know? Don't interrupt the business, right? Like so, yeah. we have the same problem with Teams. Everybody wanted to use Teams, but Microsoft. Sometimes it's not the best on developing governance for their environment. So what we did with teams is we link a tab in teams to our document management system. And if you're an internal team, you can share documents all you want with that system.
0: Right. We have a
1: 90 day retention policy and everything in teams because we can't create another repository that could end up being unmanaged. We just can't, we have way too many regulatory and client requirements that we have to meet. So um We can still use Teams, though, with outside parties like you and I can have a Teams call, Mm -hmm. but I just can't share documents with you on Teams from our repository. And if we share a document on Teams, it's only going to live in there for 90 days unless I file it where it belongs. So Mm -hmm. there's, uh, I think, uh, you know, back to that earlier point, too, it's check yourself when you're in security. Every once in a while, I'll go back to stakeholders and say, hey, am I saying no too much? just to get a, you know, just to get a, no, 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 you're good. Like, cause I don't want to be the guy who says, no, I just want to yeah. be the person who says we can do that. But, if we can meet these other requirements. Yeah. And exactly. That's sometimes the problem we find out we can't meet the other requirements. And then of course, right. It's risk management. Doesn't mean you can't do it. You go back to the stakeholders, not you, the cybersecurity head cybersecurity person should not be making the risk decisions. You should be, identifying and contextualizing the risk, making a recommendation on how to treat the risk, but the organization has to make the final decision. So we could still decide to accept the risk and do it anyway as an organization. The key is that you knowingly decide to do it. And that's the difference when you have, I think a good security program and you don't have a security program is you know when you're making decisions that are risky um, and you're tracking them and you maybe stop doing them versus an organization that says, well, this is so inconvenient. I'm not, you know, disabling the ability to write from Google media tech with that. And then you make that decision, then you don't really understand the risk and something goes bad later.
0: Yeah, you know, that, that makes total sense. That makes total sense, yeah. So uh, identifying risks, calling risks out and contextualizing them um, is really the key. And then let the firm, make the decision so essentially the uh, the uh, it security person or the department or the leader there is is playing more of a consultative role on a day to day basis saying you know yes we can do this but think about these things no we we should not be doing these things but we can do these so my life is between the yes but and the no but <laughs> i mean there are no absolutes like yes and no um, but uh, yeah no Totally uh, on the same page there as well. So we're uh, pretty close to the to the hour here. Um, so any closing thoughts? Any closing comments?
1: Um, um, yeah, I would just say, uh, you know, cybersecurity. If you're looking for a, an area where there isn't a wall at the end somewhere, you know, sometimes you get into a field and you feel like oh, I've learned everything. Now I'm bored. I got to go do something else you know, cybersecurity is just like many other areas of computer science or just any application of science, right? There's always more to be done. There's always something around the corner. You know, quantum computers, when those finally get here, are going to upend everything. Mm. Um, If you're not already trying to get out ahead of, you know, replacing your passwords, please try, because they're not going to be viable for much longer. Um, You know, things like, I mean, even social security numbers, I just tell people, I just assume all social security numbers are compromised at this point. Doesn't mean you should tell your social security number to everyone, but you don't want to be a lifelock guy. But right. at the same time, you know, don't run around through life thinking that it provides you any form of protection. Right. And I think just always think ahead, you know, how, do I, how would I proactively beat the bad guys at something like passwords? Okay, you can use MFA. Well, what if they can get my MFA? Now, how am I going to beat that? Well, I'm not, I'm going to stop using MS, you know, uh, SMS. Then, well, the Iranians have done a good job of stealing people's tokens with fake websites. So now, what do I do? Well, I better train people on how to look at websites. You know, it just goes on and on and on and on. Right. You know, right. if here on this side, bad guys are on this side. They are well funded, probably more well funded than you are, and they're exactly. highly motivated. Exactly. So uh, if you're, if you find that, you know, exciting, I would say cybersecurity is a great opportunity for you and you should definitely think about it.
0: Yeah. hundred percent. Couldn't agree more and uh, couldn't have said that better either. Yeah. The bad guys are funded. They are more importantly, very highly motivated. Uh, just anecdotally about 12, 13 years ago, uh, my, uh, one of my co- colleagues uh, at uh, Columbia uh, spoke to me and said, you know what, uh, there are these quote-unquote hackers that go into these big buildings offices located in, um, in these uh, nation states where um, they just do this, they try to get into American servers eight to five, you know, literally that's their job to do. They have been sponsored. They get paid uh, like you and I get paid. And I was thinking he was just, uh, you know, just, just being like the the man who cried wolf, you know, like, but um, turns out that's all real. Um, for, you know, I definitely believe him more now than I ever believed him before. So the motivation is there. The people are uh, knocking. We just have to be smarter and we have to be careful. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so this was uh this was great Uh, thanks again john and and i appreciate it um i'm sure our listeners or viewers who who watch this or listen to this are going to learn a lot and and i couldn't thank you more for that for your time
1: no problem thanks for having me